So I want you to picture someone in a hospital bed. They, they wake up and they're disoriented. They're completely confused and don't know who they are and don't know how they got to the hospital bed and don't know how long they've been there. Doctors call it amnesia. So it's a loss of memory. It's a loss of identity. And he finds out that he's actually been in the hospital for, for several days because an assailant broke into his house and beat him severely and stole everything that he has and also stole his identity in the process because now this poor soul is awake in the hospital and he doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't know who loves him. He doesn't know who he loves. He has no sense of purpose. He doesn't know what his career was. He doesn't know what his hobbies were. His complete loss of of identity, of memory. And this is a horrifying place to be, being in this, this fog of confusion. And we praise God that that usually those who have amnesia, as their brain heals and the memory is restored, sometimes with gaps, but usually it's restored. And I share this because when I look at humanity, that is exactly the spiritual condition of all people. We have had the enemy himself has broken into God's world, and he has beaten us up and has robbed us of our identity, and we don't even remember who we are. We don't remember what our purpose is, and what happens is you have men and women and boys and girls that are walking around in the world in a confused fog of just being disoriented and not knowing what right versus wrong is, and not knowing who loves them, not knowing who made them, not knowing their purpose, they have amnesia, spiritual amnesia. And you see the effects of it all across our world. And yet we have a God who is at work. He is at work, and he is healing spiritual amnesia, ultimately what he's doing is he's bringing the dead back to life and restoring our purpose so that we then know who loves us. We know why we're here and we are here for God, created by God and for God. And so in, in this fog of disorientation, we can We can be desperate and we can look to different ways to define our identity. We can say, education, I'm going to better myself and I'm going to better civilization. We can say, okay, I'll give myself to my career. I'm going to advance my career, contribute to society, provide for my family, and have a a fat house and nice vacations. And, And this becomes our identity. Or you can say, no. I'm going to look for it in in being thrilled. And so I need the newest devices and 
and gaming or pornography or adventures or you name it. And all of it is under the desire to be thrilled, to, to have your adrenaline pumping, to have your brain release dopamine and to have that hit. And, and we then get addicted to it. But at its root, what's going on is in this fog of confusion, not knowing who we are. We are desperate for God to clear that away, to push back the darkness and to renew us. And praise God that he is and that he does not give up on us and that he gives us a renewed identity. And as we conclude this series, it's been several weeks long, we began by considering our identity as being in community, that we belong to God and to each other, and that changes how we live as a church. We learned that our identity also is that we are holy, that we're to grow, that we are set apart and to reflect his glory in our, our lives. We learned that our identity is that we are missional. So last week we talked about being missionaries, that this is who we are. We talked weeks ago about how we are servants. This defines who we are. This is our identity. And today, as we conclude, this kind of wraps it up. This is the overall heading. You and I were made to worship. We are worshipers. This is who we are. Think back to the very beginning in creation. God created the world, but it didn't have a man or woman in it. And, and the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2 is God coming down into his newly created good world and stooping down at a riverbank and collecting some clay and then forming that clay very carefully to be a man. And then through his Holy Spirit, he, he breathed life into the man. And he became a living soul. And then God holds his son, holds Adam. Picture a father holding his newborn baby. Dad, do you remember that? Remember? The first time you held your first child, well, all of them, but in particular, your first one. <laughs> I have four. Yes, you love all of them the same, and yet the first one was the first experience of, of holding him or her and looking at them and automatically thinking, I can't picture life without you. I just made you. picture of, of God looking and saying, talking to Adam, saying, Adam, look at me. I'm your God. I am your father. I made you. And I love you. And when I see your face that is beautiful, Adam, I see a reflection of me. So I'm going to enjoy you. I'm going to be here every day. We're going we're gonna to be together. And we're going to enjoy the cool of the evening together. And we're going to talk. 
and you're going to enjoy me. I belong to you. And so I have made you for this one purpose, Adam, that you would enjoy me, that you would praise me, that you would worship me. This is why God made you and me. And yes, because of sin, it has been lost. And yet God, through his gospel, is reclaiming who made us. And we have a renewed identity. And so who are you? At your core, you are a worshiper. This is who we are. It is why there is air in our lungs. It is why your heart is beating. It is why the neurons are firing your brain. You are a worshiper. So we live to worship, created for it. We crave it, and it's our identity. It's who we are. It's why we exist. We have a renewed identity as worshipers. Now, as we consider this, I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 8. As we consider being made to worship. Now, as you turn to Nehemiah 8, I want to give you a few minutes of some context so that you understand what was going on before we read it. Remember, God's original plan was worship. You saw it with Adam and Eve. That was extended to the nation of Israel. God told them, worship me. The very first commandment is you will have no other gods before me. Worship me alone. This was their purpose. And when they would fulfill their purpose of worshiping God, what would happen is, there will be a light to the nations. Those that were far from God would see the glory of God revealed through his people as they worshipped him. And so this was their purpose, to be a light to the nations. But you know what happened? They failed. Read the Old Testament. They blew it. Now, not like some of you that maybe took a test recently and got a D plus. You can say, Mom, well, I almost passed. I was so, it was just a 69. No, this was a complete bomb F zero failure. Kind of like me recently, whenever I was trying to fix a broken weed eater. And which is ridiculous, I know. And yet I was trying, I'm trying. And so I go on YouTube and I have these tutorials and I'm saying, oh, I can do this. Because it's so easy on the screen. Look, they can do it. I can do this. And I finally succeeded when I went to Home Depot and bought a new weed eater. Failure. I failed miserably. Incapable of, of, of resurrecting the weed eater. God's people failed. They did not worship God. They turned to idols. They loved their idols instead and refused to reflect God's glory. They reflected Satan's character instead, which is out of division, of idolatry, of deceit, of not trusting God, disobeying him. Oh, they reflect, they worshiped, just not God. And so then what happened is in the year 586 B.C., is judgment came. The Babylonian 
power of the world came. And like you have to understand what the Babylonians did to Jerusalem. It's gruesome. I mean, it was, I don't want to give you details because there's children in the room. But I'll just say cannibalism. It was horrifying. And what you had was the walls were completely smashed once the siege did what it did. And everyone was dying inside the city walls. And the Babylonians came in. They completely destroyed the walls. They burned all the crops. They leveled the temple. Understand this. The glorious temple where God's glory was residing, they reduced the temple to rubble. Completely decimated Jerusalem. And then survivors were taken as exiles to modern-day Iraq into the the kingdom of Babylon. This is what happens to us when we drift away from God. There's never good consequences. Now, God is still faithful. In 539 BC, there was a new world power. The Persians defeated the Babylonians. And so now all of those Jews that were living in modern-day Iraq were now part of the kingdom of Persia. They were no longer in Babylon, same area, but now it was ruled by Persia. So what happened was with King Cyrus, he allowed a remnant to leave and to go back to their homeland to rebuild their city to rebuild their towns, to replant the crops, to rebuild the temple. And then years later, with Nehemiah, he rebuilt the city walls. Because the city didn't have protection, so they were in constant danger, and it was very shameful in that part of the world in that era to not have a wall for protection around your city. But God's plan was not just to rebuild the wall the city, or the temple. His plan was to restore the hearts of his people back to worshiping him. It was all about worship. The temple rebuilt was about God's glory. The walls rebuilt was about God's glory. It was all about worship. And God provided a man named Ezra, who was a priest, that he came with the exiles and he taught the word to a people that had become spiritually illiterate, did not know the Bible, did not know God. They had a a culture of Judaism. They had the Bible, but they weren't reading it, and they didn't know it. Sound familiar? People today that have the appearance, they have the Christian culture, but don't read the Bible, don't know God. And so that was the case then too. So Ezra began to teach the word. And what you have in Nehemiah chapter 6 is it describes when the wall was finally finished through Nehemiah. And then chapter 7 describes a people gathering together to have a big worship gathering and to hear the word. Nehemiah chapter 8 brings us to the context. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. By the way, newly rebuilt. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law 
of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So as the priest brought the law before the assembly, you hear that he brought the word to the assembly, to the gathered people, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing this square before the water gate, From, listen, he read from the word, from early morning until midday. You hear that? Reading the Bible. From early morning until middle of the afternoon. In the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand, including children. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were listening. They wanted to hear the word. Verse 4. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Now, this is amazing because I've heard people poo-poo preaching. They say, oh, preaching is antiquated. Preaching was from the 1950s. We have internet now. We watch videos. We don't need preaching anymore. Preaching is a a Western 20th century construct that we need to just go ahead and get past preaching. First of all, it's not Western. It's Jewish. These were Jews in Hebrew in the ancient world, okay, over 2,000 years ago. There was preaching. There's Ezra standing on a wooden platform. Does that sound familiar? So that the assembly could hear. What we do today is based on the Bible. So understand that this has biblical precedent. And then there's a bunch of names that are hard to say, but I'll work on them. And beside him, so these are all leaders. Madahiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah. Hilkiah, Asaniah, and on his right were Pedaiah, Mishael, Malachiah, Heshum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, Meshalim on his left hand. So these are all leaders. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. You hear that? Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, listen to this, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they were doing like breakout discussions. There were, there were leaders across that were helping to explain it further. Kind of like we do in our home groups. Take the same text that's taught and go with leaders to go apply it and explain it and and understand it better. 
verse 8, and they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. It was being explained, similar to what we attempt to do here, is read it, but then explain it. So that way we understand how to worship God. But you have to remember something. Remember the context here. The people had failed miserably. Okay? They did not obey God. They had not worshiped God. God could have easily said, you made your bed, now you lie in it. Hey, that was, your, that, that was on you. I loved you. I've been here. You blew it. Now you deal. Not God. He showed mercy. And the same God today, in the middle of your failure, is reaching into your life. This same God today in the middle of your struggles, your fears, he is reaching into your life today. In the middle of depression, of anxiety, he is reaching into your life today. And he desires to renew you, to restore you back to worshiping So the people heard God's word. He's being revealed to them. And how did they respond to the mercy of God? What did we just read in verse 6? When they're tasting God's mercy, the word is being proclaimed. God is being revealed. And then they respond. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. You hear that? Lifting up their hands and then bowing down their faces onto the ground. It's worship. It's a humbling of themselves. Acknowledging their Dependence on God, acknowledging His glory, seeing His glory, His mercy is what led them to respond with worship. With hands raised and with heads bowed. That's worship. Worship is the joy filled response. To the presence of God. You want a definition? That's what worship is. Worship is the joy-filled response to the presence of God. When we are in the presence of God, then our hearts just respond with joyous worship. And we can fake it. Go to Matthew 15. Jesus talks about those who want to fake it, those who go to church and fake it. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips. Oh, they go to church. They sing the songs. But their heart is far from me. 
their heart doesn't love Jesus. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. It's man-centered. It's not honoring to God. So he's saying it's possible to go to church, sing the songs, claim it, pretend, fake it, and then in your heart you don't actually love Jesus. He says in vain do you worship It's zero worship. It's not worship unless it comes from the heart. So that's where worship starts, and that's where it is. It lives in our hearts. And so worship is this being in awe of who God is. Now, we don't have time to to read it, but if you turn to Nehemiah 12, it's one section. Nehemiah 12 also describes the... um, dedication of this new wall. And what you will see is a worship team. It's awesome. Now, they probably didn't plug in like we do, um, but there were choirs, and they sang. They responded to God's mercy and his presence with the word and then with singing. And so that's why I say that both singing the word and having the word preached both our worship, it's still being in God's presence. One is not above the other. They complement each other. And you need the word preached and you need the word sung. Both are clearly in the Bible and both are equally worship to God. I love verse 6. It says, they recognize the greatness of God. They had a big vision of God. If you have a small vision of God, you're not going to worship him. We worship him when we have a big vision of him and we live in his presence, which is why they bow down before him. And so worship is always a joy-filled response, even when it's hard, even when The circumstances are not the way you wish they were. Even when it's depressing, even when it's painful, we can still worship and still have joy because of who God is. We sung it earlier. Behold our God seated on the throne. Oh, come let us adore him. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Nothing compares. You know, in heaven, there's not going to be a sun. Because the glory of Jesus will shine so brightly that we won't need the sun And there would never be night. Do you understand? Jesus is not just a man. He was not just a good teacher. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah and the living water and the fountain of wisdom, our creator. He is our everything. We exist by him and for him. Where where are your eyes fixed? Because what you behold is what you worship. What has your attention? 
is what you worship. And we are worshipers. Our biggest problem is idolatry for every one of us. So all our problems down to the root are worship problems. Your addiction, it's a worship problem. Your marriage problems, they're worship problems. Your financial problems, they're worship problems. All your emotional problems, they're worship problems. Your anxiety problems are worship problems. Every single one, every single struggle, every single fear, everything that you're going through, everything that plagues you, everything that you are struggling on Monday to get out of your bed, every single one, is, at its essence, it's about worship. All of it. Because we are made to worship. And so we give our hearts always. We are chasing after something. We are looking for comfort in something. We're looking for approval in something. We're looking for joy in something. We're turning to something to fill us, to sustain us. It's about worship. Maybe you think, I'm so far gone, pastor. Um, I, I hear you, but I don't even know how to begin. I don't know how to come back. I, I've just drifted too far from God. I feel like the Israelites in exile with this mass Jerusalem. I, how do I even begin the journey back? Let me give you two words. Trust and treasure. Trust Jesus. Trust him. His character. That he is good. That he is just. And that he made you and he loves you and he died on the cross for you. You cast your whole self on the mercy of Jesus. You trust him. And second key word is you treasure him. You trust him and you treasure him. Treasure, you adore, you prize him. The, the word worship, the word itself comes from the old English word worth-ship. It's what you find worth in, what you treasure, what you prize. And so whatever you prize, whatever you enjoy the most, that's what you worship. We're called to trust and to treasure Jesus. And if you're thinking, well, how do I know if I'm worshiping something else other than Jesus? Let me give you a few questions. One is, what do you enjoy the most? What do you spend the most time doing? This is a good one. Where does your mind drift when you have nothing pressing to do? What are you passionate about? How do you spend your money? What makes you angry? What do you get depressed over? What do you most fear losing? These are some good questions that we need to ponder. Chew on them. Journal them. Talk to God. Hear from the Spirit about these. And help, by God's help, His Spirit will reveal our dark, deep idols that take us away from God's presence. And remember, worship is a joy-filled response to the presence of God. And so if you don't have God's presence, you're not worshiping. 
Well, you are, just not Jesus, something else. Because we are worshipers. We're always worshiping. You can't turn off worship. You can't turn off humanity. Like, you are a worshiper. It's who you are. See, God just radiates glory, and we're called to reflect it, just like the moon reflects the sun that radiates heat and light. This is what we do. We reflect it by trusting and treasuring Jesus. That leads to obeying Jesus. So when you trust him and you treasure him, that will lead you to obeying him. If you, if you want to really worship and you say, I need freedom. I feel so enslaved by, by my eyes. Well, you can. You, you know what freedom is? Freedom is having a heart that's so gripped that you want to obey. A heart that's so overwhelmed by Jesus that you find yourself wanting to do what's right and good and holy. A changed and by the way, we do it together. We cannot do it alone. Why? We gather and have worship gatherings where he's revealed and then we respond with worship. He's revealed with singing the word, hearing the word preached, and then we respond with hearts that love him, that desire him. And then worship is all of life, all of your life. All of your thoughts, words, actions, desires, all of it is meant to be worship, a reflection of him expressing your desires for him. As we close, worship is also the fuel for and the goal of the mission. You see, when we worship, our hearts are so fueled in God's presence that it makes us want to go out and reach those that don't worship Jesus, that don't have that joy, that aren't responding with joy. And so worship fuels us, and worship is also the goal because we were made to worship.